Well, at the end of the classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, by Charles Dickens, uh, we see the innocent Charles Darnay awaiting execution by guillotine in Paris. He's preparing to die, but uh, a friend of his family's, Sidney Carton, who resembles Darnay, looks like him, visits him one last time in prison. And during the visit, Sidney Carton swaps clothes with Darnay, drugs him to go unconscious so he won't fight Darnay's plan or Carton's plan. Because Carton's plan is to take Darnay's place at the guillotine out of his love for Darnay's wife. Later on, though, he is recognized by a fellow prisoner who is shocked. And she asks, are you dying for him? She wonders why he's now in prison instead of his lookalike. And Carton answered, and his wife and child, hush, yes. And the plan works. Carton takes Darnay's place and allows Darnay to escape free. It's one of the most touching and gut-wrenching conclusions in all of literature. And at its heart is the idea of substitution. See, in that jail cell was a man awaiting death. And after Carton's visit, there still remained a man awaiting death in that cell. But it was a different man. It was a substitute. Church, this morning we come to the end of our Advent study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Israel in the early 700s B.C., And over the past three weeks, we've seen three places where he has prophesied of the Messiah to come. This anointed king whom God has promised to send his people to rule over them in righteousness forever and ever. This Messiah was foretold by Isaiah and many others in the Old Testament. And then came in the person of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. That coming is what we celebrate during this season of Advent. Of Christmas. And this morning we come to one last prophecy. And we fast forward over 40 chapters into the second part of Isaiah. So we zoom ahead from Isaiah 11 that we looked at last week all the way now to Isaiah 53. To what one scholar calls the jewel in the crown of Isaiah's theology. And here we see the king promised in Isaiah 11, the righteous ruler of the universe, that that mind-blowing monarch that we saw last week, pictured as a suffering servant, a substitute for sinners. It's an incredible passage that never gets old. My prayer is that for us today, it would strike us anew with love for Jesus. So in the passage Lee just read for us, let's see three things this morning, church, about Jesus, our Messiah. First, he came to suffer. He came to suffer. Second, he came to be judged. He came to be judged. And third, he came to triumph. To triumph. So first, church, let's look at how Jesus came to suffer. So this text here is the the final of four so-called servant songs in Isaiah's prophecy. 
So Isaiah, over the course of about 11 chapters, writes intermittently about a a servant, a servant figure who will come and bring deliverance for the world, not just Israel. And the first thing we see in this final servant song in Isaiah 53 is that this servant has come to suffer. Look in Isaiah 52, verse 14. So Isaiah says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isn't that striking? This servant, Isaiah says, would bear such great suffering that he wouldn't look human anymore. In chapter 53 and verse 2, we read, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, So right off the bat, we're told here in this prophecy that God's servant will not be seen as praiseworthy by man. He will be humble, unremarkable in appearance, a sufferer. And it's wonderful to see that scripture leaves us with no doubt as to who the servant is. So if you have your Bible, switch, uh, flip over real quick to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Here we see a Christian named Philip in the early church, and he, is, he sees an Ethiopian official in the, the court of Candace, and she's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading, and Philip approaches him, and he sees that he's reading from Isaiah 53. And I just love how the, the Ethiopian official says to, to Philip what we should be saying about this time, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then we read the answer. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture that Lee just read for us. Told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the one who came humble and lowly. And in verse 3 we see part of the way he'll suffer. Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men. Jesus came to be rejected by those he created, by his own people. Think of what John writes in John chapter 1, right? He says Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was born into rejection, into suffering. So what we celebrate at Christmas is really only the beginning of the mission, it's like the, the team that's going on a mission in a, in a war zone, and they get on the helicopter to go on the mission. It's kind of what the first advent's like. But where are they going? Where's Jesus going from the manger? He's going to suffer. Jesus had been born, yes, but he came to be born to be rejected by men, rejected by you and me. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This was Jesus, God taking on humanity. This is kind of the the epicenter of the, the revelation of God's incredible mercy in the sending of his son. As the late Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it, it would have been a wonderful and astounding thing if this eternal king and prince of glory 
had come on earth and lived in a palace as a human king with all the pomp and glory of an earthly kingship. He says even that would have been astounding, mind-blowing. But this is not what he did, says Lloyd-Jones. This is not what he did at all. He was born as a baby in very poor circumstances. And in Isaiah 53, we see Jesus was born as a baby in poverty, but we see here that he grew into a man of sorrows. You you know, this passage ought to read differently, don't you think? If everything was right and righteous, I I think it it ought to read something like, he was loved and, and worshiped by men, a man of gladness and acquainted with joy. And as one to whom men bow the knee, he was adored and we esteemed him. But that's not how it reads at all. Jesus came into the world deserving all glory and receiving all rejection. Sinful hearts reject Jesus every time. Many like to think they're okay with Jesus. They like to think he's a good teacher, a good example. But the Bible shows that what Jesus really came to do, we despise. He came to save us when we thought we didn't need salvation. He came to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. Christian, remember that this Christmas week, that Jesus came in a manger and would grow to withstand temptation, undergo suffering and scorn, and go even to the cross. Remember this week that that's what Jesus came to do. And then consider this question. Do you think he understands your trials? Do you think Jesus knows your weaknesses, your fears, your anxieties? Do you think he sympathizes with your sadness? As you look full in the face of the suffering servant king this morning, Christian, you find every reason to run to him in prayer. As ugly or put together as that prayer is. And as, as Christians, we often bemoan, especially it's a kind of a, it's a good, but it's kind of a cliche small group prayer request, right? We bemoan our, our, our quote unquote prayer life. It's, it's something we know we should do. It's good for us, but it's really hard to find the time. We get distracted as we pray. It's not fun. Yet what if part of that bemoaning is that we've simply forgotten to whom we're praying. We're praying to a Savior who knows our needs and has felt them himself. The author of Hebrews writes, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You think your temptation's weird, strange, At least one other person experienced that temptation. And it's your Savior. And so what should we do with this high priest, this Jesus? The author of Hebrews continues, Because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need a motivation for prayer? Read the first three verses of Isaiah 53. You come to a man of sorrows who has died for you. 
Christian, are you experiencing great temptation right now? Are you weary? Are you weighed down by trial? Are you depressed? Are you discouraged? You have a Savior who has been tempted just like you are, yet without sin. So reflect on that. Let that sink into your psyche. When we're struggling, we all feel the need to speak with someone who can understand us, understand what we're going through. We need that person who really knows how to comfort us, right? He won't just try to fix us, but comfort us. Jesus understands. Have you spent time speaking with him? We see here that Jesus is the Messiah King who came to suffer as a servant. But why did he suffer? I mean, was this just sort of like a nice solidarity thing? Like the the guy up on the throne kind of takes a time to kind of be among the people, like undercover boss or something like that? You know, just to, to give us a leg up and encouragement? No. The heart of this text is the second point this morning. Jesus came to suffer, yes, but to suffer in order to be judged. Look with me at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we... We are healed. So Jesus did not come merely as a sufferer, as one in a long line of religious martyrs. He didn't come merely to just kind of absorb pain for us so we could have an easier life. No, he came as our substitute. He came to take the place of us in that jail cell. He came to go to the guillotine for us. Yes, even though he was perfect, even though he was righteous and worthy of all praise, Jesus came to be a substitute sufferer for us. You know, I I love the, the part in The Pilgrim's Progress, that allegory by John Bunyan on the Christian life where where the main character aptly called Christian has a burden on him that that resembles or symbolizes his sin. And he he's bowed down and weighed down underneath the weight of his sin. And then near the beginning of Bunyan's book, Christian comes to a hill. You remember this part? And he sees a cross on it. And then below the hill is a tomb. And this is what Bunyan says. Just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. It tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. Christian was so glad and overjoyed and in his excitement he said, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. He stood still for a while and looked with astonishment at the cross It surprised him that the sight of the cross released him from his burden. He looked and he looked again as tears ran down his cheeks. What made Christian's burden of sin roll off? Better pop psychology? A better self-help book? It was a sight of the cross where Jesus took the burden for himself as Christian's substitute. That's why Christian says, he has given me rest. How? By his sorrow. He has given me life. How? By his death. Where did his sin roll off into? 
into the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. Jesus came as a suffering servant to put himself in the place of sinners. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. As one author puts it, there's no Christmas without a cross. Jesus' mission would have started but never have been completed without the cross. But there's more, church. There's more to this prophecy in Isaiah 53 and to the idea of substitution. Because, I, I mean, what, what, nece- what, what, just, what happened? What, what was done? What was executed when Jesus did that? When he took our sin on himself? What, what happened that enabled him to bear our sin and cause us to go free? Who made that decision? Who had the right to make that decision? I mean, doesn't Jesus' death for sinners seem unfair? He was an innocent man, and he took on the, the, the punishment of, of wicked men like you and me. Isn't that wrong? Doesn't his unjust death just add to the injustice of our broken world and, and give insult to injury? Isaiah 53 has the answer. Look again at the second half of verse 4. We're looking at this man of sorrows. He was despised, but then we see the ultimate reason why. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In verse 6, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. Church, the cross wasn't merely a place of suffering. It was a place of judgment. The cross, make no mistake about it, was an execution. The cross was a guillotine where God's gavel of good justice fell not on us, but on his son, our substitute. This is the foundation of substitution. That Jesus came not just to take our suffering, but to take God's wrath. Justice needed to be satisfied and Jesus willingly became sin for us so we could become the very righteousness of God in him. So did the Romans kill Jesus? Absolutely. Did the Jewish leaders beg and beg for his crucifixion? Yeah. Did Pilate allow it? Yes, he did. Did did the devil plot it? Of course he did. Did our sin put Jesus on the cross? Absolutely. Certainly, yes. But most fundamentally, church, God put Jesus on the cross. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 3 when he says, this Jesus, he's preaching and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. God sent his son so God could judge his son. On the cross, God's gavel rang thunderously throughout the world. Justice had been done. The scholar Robert Chisholm writes about this, and he says, God's justice, as demanded by the law, must be satisfied. 
to satisfy his justice, he does something seemingly unjust. He punishes his sinless servant, the only one who has not strayed off. In the progress of biblical revelation, Chisholm continues, we discover that the servant is really God in the flesh who offered himself because he was committed to the world he has created. If his justice can only be satisfied if he himself endures the punishment, then so be it. And he concludes, what appears to be an act of injustice is really love satisfying the demands of justice. Dear church, as we embark on this Christmas week, rejoice in in Jesus in the manger. Eat that up. The incarnation, the beauty of that grace. But don't stop there. Rejoice in what the baby came to do. Rejoice in your substitute. He was despised so you could be loved. He was rejected so you could be accepted. He was a man of sorrows so you could know eternal joy. He was acquainted with grief so you could become fast friends with God. He was stricken so you could be safe. He was smitten so you could be embraced. He was afflicted so you could be restored. He was pierced so you could be made whole. He was crushed so you could be made alive. He was chastised so you could know peace forevermore. He was wounded so you could be healed. He was oppressed so you could be liberated. He kept his mouth shut so yours can forever be open with praise to the Lord. He was judged so you could be forgiven. He was cut off so you could be welcomed in. It was the will of the Lord to crush him because it was the will of the Lord to save you. Look at your substitute. Can you see how serious your sin is? Can you see how serious God's judgment is? And can you see how seriously God has taken your predicament and showered you with his grace by showering his judgment on another? Nowhere is God's judgment more visible than the cross. But nowhere is God's grace more vibrant than the cross. As his judgment comes down, not on us, not on us, not on you, not on me in Christ, but on his son. Friend, if if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, so you've never turned your life over to Jesus to bear your judgment for you. I wonder if you've ever experienced guilt in your heart. I wonder if you've ever kind of regretted things you've done or said or thought I think that there's a hint there in your guilt that you know there's a standard for right and wrong that comes from somewhere. Otherwise, guilt would just need to be explained away and it wouldn't be valid at all. And some guilt isn't isn't valid, but a lot of it is. I think the standard that you're feeling in your soul is the standard of God's judgment where he brings justice to the wrong and prays for the right. So can you see how you need salvation, not from inward, not from other people, 
But you need it from the judge. You need clemency from the judge who has the only right to judge you. So who's going to take care of that? Who's going to advocate for your case? Not you. You're the guilty one. Will you just try to explain it away until you have to face it later in life? Will you try to distract yourself from it with other things? Please, friend, I beg you, cast your sin on Jesus. He will save you. And church, Isaiah 53 shows us the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah 53 doesn't stop at the cross. Hallelujah. See, Jesus was humiliated for us. He left his throne and died for us under God's justice. He's not humiliated anymore. He's not dead anymore. He rose again to seal the deal. And that's where we close this morning. That's where Isaiah closes. As we see Jesus came to triumph our last point. See, see the very first verse of this song. Chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then in chapter 53, verse 11, towards the end of the passage, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And then verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. This is the picture of military victory. So after a a victory, a a conquering army will take spoil from the enemies. And that taking of spoil, that plundering, is a sign that you have beaten the other side. It's a sign of triumph. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in this text at the end. After being debased, after being humiliated, after being killed and struck and smitten, where do we find Jesus at the end? He's bared the the crushing weight of God's judgment, and now he claims the spoil of victory. Isn't that so cool to see? Jesus was exalted, equal with God. I I think in some ways you can look at this text and kind of see this text as kind of the the pattern, the arc of Jesus' ministry. Because this passage starts with his exaltation, his humiliation, and then again his exaltation. And that's the story of the gospel. He was exalted. He was equal with God. But he didn't count that something worthy to grasp, but made himself nothing. Made himself into the form of a servant, even dying on a cross. So that now every knee will bow before him. And God has established him as the king over all. As we'll sing His death will make a way, and by his blood, he'll win us. Church, Jesus came to die, but he's now alive. We'll sing in a little bit how joy dawned when he came in the first advent, but church, one day at the second advent, that that kind of dawning light will be full, bright, noonday sun. And Jesus will return, conquering death, hell, and Satan forever. And united to him, we conquer too. So dear Christian, because Isaiah 53 has been fulfilled in Jesus, you are, at this very moment, Christian, accounted righteous in the sight of God. 
You don't need to worry about a list checked twice. See if you're naughty or nice. Your sin has been placed on the back of your Savior. He has taken your list. And now he's given you your, your, his, your, his list, yours. Your list has been washed clean and filled up with the character and accomplishment and victory of Jesus Christ. Would you breathe that in today? Take time to just be still and let that truth weigh heavily and gloriously on your mind. Heave a a sigh of relief in the midst of the brokenness you've seen in your heart this past week. And the brokenness you've seen around the world this past year. And see Jesus as your substitute, giving you his righteousness. What you could never do, he stepped in and did for you. He took your place in the jail cell so you can now join him in his rightful place. Exalted forever. So would you spend time thanking Jesus for his gift this Christmas. We'll have a moment of silent reflection soon after our song where we can do that even now. Thanking Jesus for his gift. There will be a lot of really good gifts to celebrate this this Christmas. Family, friends, food, festivities. Would you spend time thanking Jesus for coming to step into your place? Would you worship him as the one who even now stands in victory with his feet on the neck of his enemies, bringing home the spoils of triumph. One scholar writes, the servant will return from his mission like a warrior laden with spoil. His weakness will turn to strength, his dishonor to honor, his defeat into victory. The one who was despised and rejected will take the highest place, the place of a conqueror. So Isaiah 53 melts our hearts as we see the suffering of our Savior. But it doesn't end there. It shows us how that suffering was only the pathway to glory. And so it will be for us, dear Christian, united to Jesus. United to him, our path also is suffering to glory. So let's pray that in the times of suffering now, we would redeem them for the sake of our Lord And let's pray and beg him to bring to us the day of triumph. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you left your throne above. So free, so infinite your love. And then you took on our weakness. And then then you took on even our sin. And then you took on even our death. And, and then you took on even our judgment. You took it all. And it could not hold you down. You died and bled for us, but then you rose again victorious. And there's never going to be a change in regime. You're never going to have to be voted back into office. Your government will last forever, King Jesus. And so we praise you. We sing to you, to the one who has brought joy as the dawn of light in our lives and will one day come to make that bright, full sunshine, making everything right. We praise you.
And we pray that you would hear the sincere worship of our hearts as we sing now. Amen.